Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome everyone, Brendan here with markvetgurus.com. And a quick plug for the website, um, vetgurus.com. There you go. <laughs> There's a plug, place to go to learn everything about each episode. And we have links to all the news stories there and also a link to patreon.com where you can support us if you want to throw us a bone and send a few dollars our way to help support this publicly funded podcast, as I like to call it. Mark, how have you been, Mark? Been great, Brendan. Really, really well. Um, work's been busy. We've been um, getting lots of cases and some of them are a bit bit complicated, but um, things have been going well. Well, as I was saying off air, we've been a bit quiet today. <laughs> <laughs> You've been very busy. Had some interesting cases the last um, few days or the last week or so, and you'll be, you'll be pleased to know I've been using the toothpaste technique. Um, with extracting distal urethral um, sludge in a uh, guinea pig, Mark. So um, I know you hate the um, toothpaste technique, but um, it was anaesthetised and it was um, filled full of local anaesthetic around that distal valve region. And I was about to make my incision to remove the little plug and the urolith, but I decided, no, I'm going to try the toothpaste technique. So I flushed and I flushed and I... I squeezed it out, Mark, so there you go. <laughs> That's what I've been doing. Um, but, uh, yeah, we've been a tank quiet, but it is a, it's a, what is it? It is the weekend, in episode 90, the weekend in Friday, July the 5th, 2019, the first week of school holidays here down in um, Victoria. And um, school holidays are a bit of a weird one, and I'm sure it's the same with the vet clinics worldwide, Mark, in that it's either crazy or it goes absolutely dead. And typically within, no, I don't know what it's like up your neck of the woods, Mark, but typically with first couple of days of school holiday, it's pretty quiet because the last thing people tend to want to do is um, take their dog or their snake or their fish to the vet for a health check, um, although sometimes it ends up being, I've got nothing else to do, what am I going to do? And I'm going to take my dog to the vet. <laughs> Um, so how do you find it during um, holidays? Is it variable? It's our, um, you know, our feeder zone, if you like, includes uh, both families that have uh, children at school and a fair few people who don't have children. So school holidays for them become a bit irrelevant. But there's no doubt that um, that uh, those families that have kids at school do take a little bit of a, you know, catch their breath for a few days once the school term has ended. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's something that we definitely see the same as you. Brendan's off. But I was off mute. I was on mute as usual. I should have, so I'm, it, it only took me three minutes. <laughs> That's almost a record. I've been watching those. Those uh, on our uh, our listeners should be aware that there is a system in place so that I should be aware that Brendan, there's a little microphone uh, symbol and there's a X across it and. Um, and of course, as I talk, my mind wanders. I don't watch the symbols, and then I, uh, I speak as if Brendan's going to speak. And of course, he is blowing his nose. Yes, no, I was um, sucking on a bit of a lolly because I still got a bit of a remnant of the of the cough from my lurgy um, the last week or so. And um, my good wife Annie is is finally through the woods. I, I passed it on to her, probably much 
worse outlook for her than me. Um, she was in bed for several days and uh, she wasn't too happy with me for it, but um, she's come through the other side. So, but yeah, I, I put myself on mute there to just suck on a bit of a, a little um, cosmology there, Mark. <laughs> a lozenge, yes. Um, so, yes, we're, we're all professionals here, aren't we, Mark? And um, we get better and better each episode, as you oh, can see. Oh, look what as, that button does. Yes. Actually, I've never worked out what that one does, Mark. Let me let me have a look. Actually, it is this button, I think. <laughs> there you go. I've been wanting to use that one for a while. There you go. Okay, so um, do you have any other um, news, um, life, universe, anything before we get stuck into it? No, let's some, get into uh, it. Let's news. get into um, it. Well, my first one, I'm trying to work my head around this one, Mark. I found it quite fascinating, this story. So it was... The title is How Tiny Fish Ear Bones Can Reveal Criminal Activity. And what it is, it, it's about state biologists in Montana, Montana in the US discovered two illegally introduced walleyes, which are um, species of carnivorous species of fish, in Swan Lake, Mark, of all lakes, um, in northwestern Montana. Montana. Um, the scientists have been netting for lake trout and other invasive species when they caught the walleyes um, and they took them back to the lab. And the presence of them in the lake came as a surprise because the closest body of water known to contain the species is around about 160 miles away by road, Mark. So they were a little bit suspicious that perhaps somebody had placed them there. And uh, the bottom line with this story is they end up studying the fish ear bones or the otoliths because they can serve as useful forensic tools, according to the article, because it's chemical markers in the otoliths. Um, so they used um, that particular fact to determine where the swan lake walleyes had come from and they worked out with colleagues around the state to collect otoliths from walleyes living in 12 other lakes that anglers tend to frequent, and they found a matching signature in Lake Helena, located 192 road, road miles south of Swan Lake. And uh, what they think's happened is they're, they're quite a popular species um, um, for fish, for anglers and, and for eating, for those anglers. Um, and um, they think what happened is... Uh, Somebody who lived close to Swan Lake decided they didn't want to trek all the way to um, Lake Helen or Helena and um, decided to um, bag up a few of the fish and take them and dump them into Swan Lake, Mark, to breed them so they wouldn't have to travel far from home. So that's my first story. Now, the, I'm the pleasing to... thing about that story was that um, it looks like um, so the researchers continue to that that happened in. 2016, I think, and yes. um, it's gotten to the news now because they haven't found any more. So with a bit of luck, they've caught the, you know, maybe there was one extra one that um, that didn't have any to breed with and so the introduced fish have not established a population. But it's interesting, Brendan, because um, otoliths are that sort of strange thing that, you know, like ring bar rings in a you know in a tree, the lay layers that are laid down can be can provide a huge amount of information. But this is a type of information I've never never thought would happen. Yes, almost as much information you get from belly button fluff, Mark. <laughs> I reckon um, with otoliths. Um, and as you know, um, there's a scientist in Australia called Dr. Carl who um, famously won a um, an award for his um, paper on belly button fluff. Do you remember that many the, years the ago? Ignoble, Ignoble Award? Ignoble Prize, yes, yes. Um, so 
I've gone off on a tangent already, haven't I? But um, I think the other reason why I put this particular story in, it does it does um, segue quite nicely to our main topic, Mark, which is ear diseases that we're going to talk about in Unusual Pets. So there you go. I've, I've just about wrung out as much as I can you for my first story, that. Mark. <laughs> what have you got? My first story is um, a report. Uh, I think it's, uh, well, it's relatively... Um, recent these reports uh, pop up in on our local news, the ABC or a number of other uh, sources of information that talk about our ticks here in Australia. Um, and while tick-borne disease is a significant problem overseas, we well, there's some argument about whether we have it or not, but we certainly don't see it in the same fashion as places overseas. Um, but what we do see is paralysis, Brendan. So it's um, both in, it does actually occur in humans. Um, uh, there have been uh, people who have been paralysed. In fact, uh, early in our country's history, death by paralysis tick was uh, more common than death by funnel web spider bite and about the same as um, snake bite. So um, it definitely was a formative part of the you know, bush experience for our early settlers. Um, but um, now that we've got a much better handle on uh, what the ticks do and how they work, uh, the the lethality of an attachment is much less of a worry. Um, but it's still something that pe- plays on people's minds about how um, how they they you know how how to get them off. The people worry a lot about how to get them off, and um, this story. Yes, and and interestingly enough, interestingly enough, um, there's a lot of stories that seem to have you know um, very uh, firm opinions that are quite different to many other people's opinions. So I think there's quite a lot of different thoughts about the ways to get them off. But I think um, the most like what we recommend for our clients at work is one of the techniques that's suggested in this article. And that is to those little tick hooks with a little V in the end. If we can get those down at the very uh, level, surface level of the skin and do the whole twisting and gentle tension routine, then we do tend to get them out pretty well. Um, people always worry about the head being left in, Brendan, and certainly this yes. article talks about that uh, fear. But um, the problem, of course, is that uh, the ticks have glued their mouth parts into the body. So you're almost always going to have that hard little um, little lumpy bit of stuff which uh, includes some, uh, you know, um, glue material and the mouth parts no matter how you get them out. The key thing is you want to separate the salivary glands from um, the patient, whether that be human or animal, uh, because the salivary glands contain the poison which, uh, you know, continues to cause paralysis and if you give them a good squeeze like if you grab them with your fingers or um, with the sort of broad bladed uh, um, eyebrow tweezers um, then you could give the body a squeeze and and the salivary glands and sort of cause the injection of a little bit more poison than you would otherwise prefer I reckon. Yes. So do you, uh, and I, know, I think I've asked you this previously Mark do you see many um, tick paralysis cases up your way? We'd see a lot. Well, funnily, I think I've told you this story too, Brendan. We set up on uh, we set up our practice about oh, 22 years ago, I think now, maybe a little bit more, and um, we did a little bit of a map of Newcastle. We wanted to be near Newcastle, and um, we stuck 
pins in the map where all the practices were, there was a bit of a gap. And one of the um, benefits of that space in the gap where we are now was it was, uh, you know, at the edge, it was a peri-urban area. And we thought, oh, those cases where we might get to see a few uh, a few ticks or um, the other misadventures that animals have in peri-urban areas, they, they never eventuated, Brendan. We, we probably see over... Um, you know, spring, the peak season for us, spring and early summer, we might see uh, half a dozen to a dozen cases. There are practices in Newcastle and a little bit further north who would do that in a single day. Um, so we certainly don't see as many as some practices, but, um, but we certainly see quite a few. And interestingly enough, tick cases are one of the most common um, reasons for complaint to our veterinary registration authority here in New South Wales. Um, when so what, the, the cost or the treatment uh, method or...? Uh, that's a good question. Look, interestingly enough, well, the, the, our regulatory authority in, in New South Wales, as soon as it comes to a question of cost, that's outside our legal ambit. Um, so it is just to do with the medical details of the case. Um, it, it's... Um, it generally has to do with, you know, when the animal's sent home, the decision to give it uh, tick serum, the, the difficulty in identifying that it is a tick paralysis case. There's the classic appearance of a ataxic animal with maybe a little bit of a husky cough and, um, uh, and uh, an end-tidal grunt. Um, that classic case, of course, um, we can all recognise as a tick, but tick paralysis cases are so, so variable. And um, some dogs, we've had dogs come in who are just vomiting. They're no other clinical sign. They don't look ataxic. Um, and uh, and you, um, you've just got to be on alert that uh, they can appear like anything. And, of course, they're the ones that uh, people obviously... They progress before the ticks identified, so they cost a lot more to treat, and and people are upset that they have had the animal at the vet maybe for a few days before the the uh, problem is uh, is diagnosed, yes. which is not easy. Yes, well, have a lot more experience to me with them. We basically don't see them, even though there has been some paralysis ticks reported um, in. Melbourne region that supposedly weren't trans transitory ones, that they were not animals that had gone up north and come back. Um, I certainly see a fair number of ticks, obviously, on wildlife that's brought in um, and some of them covered in some of the ticks with no apparent ill health with them and, and these are different species and that paralysis tick, tick as well. Um, but, but yeah, I know, I know it's um, so the further north you go and some of the, some of the practices, what up in Queensland, for instance, are... Uh, during the tick season, they they're, they're treating a hell of a lot of animals, aren't they? Exactly um, they've right. got a bit of a production line going with um, with all the animals um, in in the hospital there. Yeah, yes. So when you remove the tick market, do you? Do, do you I, I remember in the past I've seen articles and I chuckled when I saw it about the the method of removing them, whether you whether you've um, twisted clockwise <laughs> or anti clockwise, and and those sorts of things. What's your method? Um, and I know you've you've told us about trying to trying to do your best, trying to not have those salivary glands or the venom um, in, injected in there further by you trying to remove it. But um, yeah, you're a lefty or a righty. 
have always left Lucy lefty, Brendan. <laughs> Lucy lefty, righty tidy. Okay, there we go. Yes, excellent. Well, my second news story, Mark, is a bit of an update to one that we did previously, and that was about the outbreak of African swine fever in pigs in China, Mark, and uh, we, we had a bit of a chat a couple, few episodes ago, I think, um, stating that more than a million pigs have been culled and that they were worried that uh, it would be worse um, before it gets better and that there was under-reporting um, and some of the farmers were not reporting potential infections because they were worried about all their stock being um, culled there. Well, there was a bit of an update a couple of couple of days ago, Mark, by Reuters, um, and it was quite uh, quite scary, quite astounding, um, and it was stating as many as half of Chinese, China's breeding pigs have either died from African swine fever or been slaughtered because of the spreading disease, twice as many as officially acknowledged, according to the estimates of people who supply the large um, farms there, Mark, um, and they still think um, the estimates may even be um, conservative. So, yeah, something like 50% of sows are dead, according to this particular report there, and, um, you know, the losses um, are not just from the infected pigs dying or the, or the culling of, of, of the infected stock or the, or the stock um, on the farms that um, were exposed or, or they had positive cases, but also farmers sending pigs to market early when the f- disease is discovered in nearby farms, Mark, and um, they're concerned that, um, well, well, by the look of it, they also report that pork accounts for more than 60% of Chinese meat consumption, Mark, and that um, it's a huge amount of the, um, of the, I did mention about the percentage of um pork that um is also um exported there and it was a um it was a it was a um i can't find it in this particular pot but it was a it was a fair amount yeah. the numbers um, are just and the numbers are just like <coughs> mind-numbingly large they're almost too difficult to wrap your head around that um uh that there's seven uh, there's each year there's um 700 million pigs slaughtered um, and they expect um, that that number um, will will drop by possibly two hundred million, um, and um, and maybe you know eventually get to the point where they're they're, uh, they're producing half as many. And um, and there's a whole lot that that actually it's such a big part of the the protein in their diet that um, that it it uh, has a measurable effect on economic growth and. Um, and and of course, the way these things do in international economies, the American, um, uh, the American, there's an American market in pig futures, pork futures, and 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 that market has rallied ridiculously. So it's amazing how um, how diseases um, can have multiple effects, both on hu- human welfare locally um, and um, and just you know. Uh, at a distance around the world. So an interesting story. Yes. yes. So President Trump, does he have some pork on his fork, Mark? That is the question. Perhaps he doesn't at the moment, or maybe he does and he's, and he's sticking his finger up at, um, at, um, at the Chinese with their issues at the moment with their pork. Yes. So, And you've done a couple of really good articles about... Um, Insects as protein source, haven't you? So perhaps that is the future. I, I think I, 
you know, I don't want to, you know, you and I have had discussions before about where the future lies and, and what will happen to, um, you know, the, what changes will occur in the future to make life sustainable for humans. And um, and I do think that um, the, uh, the efficiency of protein produced by insects, maybe this will be the, you know, the, the, there'll be a little pressure applied to that change now with um, diseases like African swine fever. Yes, well, give us something um, a bit more lighthearted, Mark. A bit what have you got? Lighthearted? Did you say lighthearted? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, my next article is uh, talking about moth behaviour and in particular um, looks at uh, change behaviour as a result of, um, of light pollution. And as we all know, um, that uh, moths uh, are attracted to a bright light, they fly towards the moon to get themselves well above the surrounding um, landscape so they can release pheromones which are involved in reproductive activity. So they uh, um, will clutter around artificial light sources in the mistaken belief that they're flying higher and distributing their pheromones more widely. Um, but this uh, study from 2016 explored how exposure to light pollution might change the behaviour and reproduction of some small species, the ermine moths. Um, and uh, what they did was collect um, larvae, moth larvae, from 10 independent populations across France and Switzerland, um, and all of these moths were raised in a uniform environment. Once they'd reached adulthood, over 1,000 of the moths were tested to compare their flight to light behaviour. The researchers found that moths from highly light-polluted areas were significantly less attracted to lights compared to those from dark sky regions. Um, this strongly suggests that the moth populations have been adapting to light pollution and they've become less inclined to fly towards lights if they are from an area with lots of light pollution. So, of course, as is the way with these studies, Brendan, there's many questions that remain. Um, how, how, just how does this altered behaviour affect their ability to reproduce and survive? Will these moths that no longer are so attracted to bright light, will they persist in those environments? Or has the uh, absence of that behaviour, is it likely to change the, eco, the local ecology so those moths can't survive? Um, is the change in behaviour accompanied by changes in physiology? And uh, as is often the case, where there's an evolved a genetic difference in one aspect of physiology, maybe there's a consequence somewhere else. Maybe um, the eyes are less sensitive to light or maybe there's lowered or ability to travel large distances. So it's interesting to know that... Um, that maybe um, something as simple as us lighting the world at night, um, it may be enough to dramatically change the um, the uh, the nature of one species and therefore many other species in the wild. And that's my light story, Brendan. Well, you blow me away with that. I don't know where to go with that. Um, it's. Um, too many questions, Mark, um, raised from that. But all the good stories end up giving more questions than answers, don't they? 
don't they? And it, although it did remind me of it, it reminded me of you when you were young, and and you were like a, the flame, and all the moths were gathering around you when you were when you were all the ladies that were trying to court you, Mark, um, before you um, met lovely Kate. And I was I I must have been brought up in a light polluted city because um, they weren't sort of hovering around me as much as they were around You're you, Mark. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, let's get on to our main topic, which is ear diseases in unusual pets. So, gee, this one we could go over several episodes, but I think we'll just touch on some of our favourite and not-so-favourite bits and species and syndromes, I suppose, or conditions in, in unusual pets, Mark. So do you want to kick it off? Where do you want to start? Gee, it's a big it topic. It is a big topic, and um, and I know that we've touched on various aspects of it with um, with uh, specific podcasts before, but I, th- I agree with you. I think it's good to sort of, you know, canvas across uh, the range of species we see. But I think um, I'd like to start by asking you... Um, uh, what sort? Of, you start at, at the most common one. The most common one we would see would be the uh, our uh, bunny rabbits. We regularly see they would be the most common ear problem that we see. Um, and so, uh, how do these? Uh, is that the same at your practice? And if it is, well, yes, as, yes. As far as the exotics go, we certainly see a few dogs and cats, obviously. But yeah, if we stick to exotics, yeah, I see a lot of um, a lot of bunnies with the with the um, Ear empyemas is what I call them, which which is taken from Vittorio Capello, tended to state that it's an empyema there, a pus in a bit of a closed cavity or something is his definition of it. Um, yeah, we see a reasonable number of them. And, and I think, Mark, um, part of the issue there is the, the problem with the breeding of rabbits and the lop breeds and um, the whole structure of that ear canal there with um, the, the actual lop ear um, and there's a gap between the, the three cartilages there um, in the ear and the reason why I know this is because I studied up on this for my little um, one of my little talks I did about endoscopy when I was um, um, recently overseas and uh, um, the anatomy is quite interesting Mark so the three little cartilages there um, they're not touching there's a bit of a gap and that's what forms the lop in those lop ears so um the the, the skin sort of folds over there um and that that results in the ear that does not stand up so um and it makes them prone to then getting issues there because um you know I, I, as you know um, rabbits have I, I think they have an, an increased amount of sort of wax compared with most other species naturally in their ear um, and then if we have something like the altered anatomy like those lot breeds then they're going to be prone to those those issues as well um, and you know there can be other conditions as well like um, ear mites for instance and those um, middle inner ear conditions and then we need to I suppose talk about all the um, interrelated conditions around the head there and the dental disease and the cuniculi and all those sorts of things. So my answer is yes, I see a lot of rabbits um, with ear conditions. Um, the other ones that I see with ear problems, not unusual at all to see guinea pigs with ear conditions, Mark, um, and typically with those it would be um, it would be a, a, a bit of grass or a bit of hay stuck down the ear canal. And that's another one I always put on the list for those acute onset ear issues in in the rabbits as well. That don't forget about the ear horns, um, the the um, horn from the from the um, when hay. when you find those, it's an interesting 
I always am fascinated by the the diff, you know our practices on so many levels are very similar, but um, that's why I suppose I'm very interested in the differences. And this is one we um, don't see a lot of uh, foreign bo- ear foreign bodies in our rabbits and guinea pigs, um, and and that may just reflect you know our inattention to detail, having a good thorough look. Um, but what what differences do you see between those M. pyema rabbits and the foreign body ones? Oh, acute onset, and I need to backpedal there a little bit. I mean, I'd say it's unusual, um, unusual to rare um, for them. But we, you know, I'd probably see one every month or two. Um, so it's if I said it was common, I was I was wrong, Mark. totally wrong. <laughs> no, no, well, I, I still um, think so, that's a yeah. fair, fair call um, so, because we would probably see so, only like I don't know one a, one a year. Um, so once a month is okay. is common. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the yeah, so the difference between those the foreign body ones, I, I think they're it's a it's an obvious dramatic acute onset. They were normal yesterday, and they're they're going pretty crazy with with flapping the ear end or trying to scratch it. It seems um, dramatically painful there, and they're shaking the head and scratching the ear, um, and you can often see signs of them physically scratching that ear. So you see scratch marks from those nails, um, those back legs scratching the ear there um compared to the empyona ones which can be more insidious mark um and i don't know with you but some of them might we we pick up um i pick up on a clinical examination and the owner may not have noticed that the owner had had an issue or a lump at the base of that base of that ear there near the near the um tympanic membrane um do you do you see them like that that. we'll often uh get the, the that part of the canal where the different cartilages just have that little gap and so an ulceration on the surface of the mucosa within the canal maybe by we often see these um the the I almost think of them as rocks the wax in the canal um particularly in the lops just can't get out and um the obviously the lighter oils evaporate um and the wax just turns into crikey little an totally exactly um and then abrades the inner surface the mucosa of the ear and um then some of the staffs or um you know the textbooks would suggest uh, pastorella but most of the ones we find are staffs and um they slip in between the cartilage and you get a an an relatively round palpable subcutaneous lump right at that point and um and they can be a king-sized um, problem to get rid of. The surgical technique to ensure that you've gotten all the infected material out, as you know, is uh, is a bit of a battle. But um, but certainly they present differently. The the once a year uh, foreign body ones are, are often moister because and and redder in exudate because the rabbits are just going berserk trying to scratch the thing out. Yes. So what's your approach to those those empyema ones, Mark, initially? Um, well, it's to, um, it's aggressive surgical resection. Um, we try and take the um, – we treat the empyema as an abscess and carefully dissect it out. Um, and, uh, and then tr- we generally are dissecting it from the outside. We are not treating it as an ear canal disease in the first instance. Um, and um, and that's the difficult thing is making sure that you've got it all out in our experience. So is that so that's surgically removed or no, just flushing? Because surgical, what I tend, yeah. 
surgery. Okay, interesting. So um, I tend to most of them initially go the opposite way with those and do do a bit of a a flush um, and um, um, if the owner will let me. Um, so anaesthetise the animal and, and, and um, scope it and, and make sure there's no foreign body in there um, apart from that pus and, and or any, you know, polyps or anything like that. And um, flush, flush, flush um, until um, we've removed it all there and then it will go on um, antibiotics and anti-inflammatories. Um, and, yes, um, a reasonable number of them will potentially um, come back there and then they're the ones that we start chatting to the owners about um, other options including either long-term medical or, or the surgical techniques. Um, so I'm probably not quite as aggressive um, with with taking them to the surgery um, like you do initially, uh, Mark. So I don't know whether whether I, I'm any more successful. Um, um, probably not. Um, I, I'd expect that if you take them to surgery and you... you um, um, and you get a nice clean result there that um, you'd probably get very few of them um, recurring. Okay, so we've had a bit of a glitch here, Mark, but we're all back on track here, so hopefully we won't, our listeners won't notice at all. So we won't notice at all. We've had very few technical glitches over the the uh, the ninety odd episodes we've done, Brendan. I'm 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 sure that they've been papered over, so people would not even know. We've been very lucky with um, the program we use. It's been very reliable up until two minutes ago. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Empire Man Rabbit. So, Rabbit, so interesting one, yeah. So, um, oh. listen, I've got a question for you. Because of that whole um, scoping thing, yes. um, I was keen to get your impressions of, like, the, the – when we stick the scope in, what we tend to see is um, uh, maybe some of that white, you know, that white pus that we yes. get the toothpaste material. Um, it it may or may not be in the ear canal. We may just have a smear on the outside, but um, we can often, you know, my uh, predilection for not squeezing things um, into spaces, the toothpaste technique. But if you do put any pressure on that, the ball outside the ear canal, you will often see that material get into the the um, into the ear canal and and uh, block it up. What do you see when you scope them? Exactly that. <laughs> exactly that. Oh and, my god! I was and, hoping for some new insight. No, and I and I flush and break it up, and sometimes I use a variation on the toothpaste technique to gently help break up the um, the pus mark as as I'm flushing there. So gently, gently massage there, and um, um, whether I'm whether I'm just too rough, too not rough enough, too bold, not bold enough. Um, I, I, I don't find, um, as far as I know, I don't find any um, any um, iatrogenic damage um, from me rupturing eardrums or anything like that no, from I'd, from using I'd, that technique. Yeah. I'd say you're right in the Goldilocks zone, Brendan. <laughs> well. You know what's going to happen the next one I do. You know? <laughs> um, you know what's going to happen. So, yeah, the rabbits with their ear issues and, and pussy ears, um, pus-filled ears can be can be a challenge, Mark. And, and I think you're spot on there and that we need to remind our listeners that it needs to be part of the clinical examination of any rabbit that comes in to 
palpate those ears and I tend to do it symmetrically. I'll be palpating the left ear with my left thumb and index finger and at the same time doing the same with the right ear base there, Mark, and, and comparing if there's any differences um, and detecting those, those swellings at the base of the ears in those, in those rabbits. Because they are, there's sort of no universal shape, um, and I'm much the same as you. I, I regularly compare left and right because um, I'll feel one side and go, oh, my goodness, that's an unusual shape, and then you'll feel the other side. They'll be exactly the same. You'll stick the scope in the ear and uh, the, the otoscope, and there'll be no uh, evidence of a problem. So um, that difference is uh, a big clue to something being wrong. Um, do you Do you... Do you commonly correlate? Like one of the referrals we get for rabbits, Brendan, is the um, is the head tilt rabbit for uh, encephalitis, zoonoses, and treatment thereof. Um, but it's amazing how many of those we actually find have um, uh, middle ear infections um, rather than uh, e caniculi being the cause of their problem. Is this something that you see? Absolutely, completely. Correct, Mark. Yes, definitely. And um, I'm of the opinion that we vastly overdiagnose the ear caniculae has been a cause for a lot of these head tilts and ear issues in rabbits in that a lot of them are, are infectious causes other than ear caniculae that um, people are just doing the shotgun treatment with them and, and covering them with everything, antibiotics, non-steroidals and also... Um, Fembendazole um, and the rabbits recover over time, despite but often our treatment, and and then the vets are then saying that they responded to to the caniculi treatment when it may have got better, no matter what we did, um, and and the animal um, managed to rewire its brain and, and learn that it had its head on the tilt and I think a fair number of them are not echinicular even though people think they are and um, interestingly enough I'm trying to remember the last time I dispensed fembendazole for a head tilt in a rabbit and it's actually oh, it's a very, very of... long time Mark it is a very long time well it's it's a real um, puts us always in a quandary because um as you well know, fenbendazole has some very potentially serious side effects, um, uh, bone marrow suppression and a number of other complications. And so in all fairness, I think the majority of these rabbits are ones that, um, that like you said, are, are probably going to get better of their own accord. And, um, and I worry about dispensing fenbendazole routinely. I really want um, to be in a much better position to do it. Um, well, I think what, what I tend to do is just explain to the client and, and tell them the pros and the cons and say, look, you know, we, we may be just guessing about using this drug and then, then thinking that that's, that's, that's what cured it um, and why it responded where it, it was a tincture of time um, is why that animal responded. And and um, majority of the clients that I explain it to them um, in similar process to that, that they, um, they'll then... Um, go with our advice and um, we don't put it on the fembendazole and the animal um, 
the animal, well, I was going to say the animal and then dies. <laughs> no, the animal recovers <laughs> over time. <laughs> so, yeah, um, although there, there is, it's, it's a bit like the, you know, the, the, the client that comes in with a patient and, and they just want the antibiotics, you know, the, it'll be the GP issue with a, with a human too where, where the person just wants something dispensed and, um, and, and, and it shouldn't have something dispensed and yet there's the pressure on there from the client to, to do that and um, especially with those clients that come in with the reams of paperwork from Dr Google and all the rabbit forums mark um, and saying look I've, re- I've researched it is what they say to you as soon as they walk in the consult room I've researched this condition um, and then um, once your eyes have rolled back um, looking forward again mark um, well with me anyway I and I've picked myself up off the floor I, I think here we go um, and I I try and be calm and um, considered and considerate and compassionate and I tell them they're, they're talking a load of rubbish and uh, <laughs> and, and but we walk, walk through the process of um, sorting out um, options with, with that particular patient with, with them. But again, it is a funny one. It, it is a funny one. It is tricky and I definitely uh, – there are many situations in in uh, unusual and exotic practice where people come in with their research, and I look at it as an as a uh, you know as maybe a bit of a challenge, but an opportunity. They're definitely motivated, and um, and you can work your way through. and And if you explain things well, things do you, you may well end up with a client for life out of that um, experience. Uh, yeah, but yes. the rabbit I mean, ear ones, the the people who come in <laughs> to get their fenbenders on. I often feel like I don't and. I don't want to be judgmental, but I probably and maybe my delivery, but they are the cases that um, that you know I'm, I'm all the explanation in the world, all the acknowledging nods that the client gives, then they get to the end and go, okay, you're going to give me my stuff now. <laughs> it yeah, just doesn't seem to yeah. work as well. Well, and then you say no, Mark. That's what you should be saying. <laughs> you say no, based on my clinical experience and my my considered. Ex- expert or my considered um, opinion as a veterinarian, um, I don't think we should be dispensing this medication for your animal. And um, then you say to them, gee, I'm, I'm glad I just bought that new shredder, so pass <laughs> me over your paper and um, we can we can recycle it for the um, for the uh, rats out the back um, in their enclosure. So, no, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. But interestingly enough, Mark, there's, there's – at least two or three of the other other vets who deal with lots of rabbits here in in the Melbourne region, and and there we're all in, on the same page as far as um, we, we we rarely, if ever, these days dispense or recommend fenbendazole yeah. for for these head tilts. Um, yeah, it so. speaks to the quality of your colleagues in in your area, Brendan. What about um, just quickly as an aside, while we're talking about uh, encephalitisone? Um, I must admit, uh, I don't dispense fenbendazole, but I do think it's much more commonly a, um, a reason for ocular disease. Um, I, I, I make that yes. assertion, and we've had a couple of postmortems where we've actually pulled the lens out and identified the organism. So while yes. I downplayed in the air, I do think it causes problems in rabbits. Yes, and and with the uh, renal condition as yes. well with them. So yes, oh, so no kidneys. We have to talk about kidneys in another one. What about ear mites in rabbits, Brendan? Okay, ear mites. Yes, so we do see, and um, not very commonly, but we do see it. And the beauty of them is, and I mentioned in that 
recent episode where I was doing the endoscopy lab in in China and the one of the rabbits that that I happened to pull out of the hat to do the endoscopy with <laughs> um, had lots of ear mites. So the um, the vets were very happy with um, um, seeing the ear mites on the screen there. So it's it's always good to have a little creepy crawly, isn't it, on the screen there um, live um, to to show clients. So that's the beauty of doing things like um, endoscopy and um, otoscopy and uh, and um, taking pictures of the rabbit dentals and all that. It's great to show people photos and say, look, here's the problem that it had there. So, yeah, and, and the good news with those ear mite ones, they're pretty easy to treat. You just put them on one of the parasiticides as well. And, and I will, I, I would flush out the ear canal as well with those. There's, there's usually they, some debris, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, there's all the ear mites and the eggs and the feces and the, you know, food or whatever and um and all the gunge from the emites there so yeah um and it was like this one we did in china it was um gee, there was a hell of a lot of emites down that ear um so yeah so yes do you have you seen many or, or very few no um, we've seen very very few um emites yeah. and um and we are always you know we're trying to uh, get the scope in regularly and make sure we um uh, do pay particular attention to them. Um, and they are, um, you know, the, funnily enough, the ones that uh, I have seen um, tend to be ones where we we get a little bit of material out and you, you can spot the damn things moving um, like yes. just, you know, within uh, normal vision without the magnification. Um, so it is a, um, a frustrating one, I find, when we've got the otoscope in, um, and probably the endoscope is the way to go with these ones, I reckon. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm going to jump on to another species here, Mark. What about ferrets with grotty ears? What What's your thoughts on those? Do you see many of them? We do see lots of ferrets that um, that have uh, grotty ears, and um, and and look when when those clients get online and they do do the you know the whole search. Um, there's a whole range of external parasites that uh, ferrets get, um, but not necessarily all in Australia. Um, it is a, a bit of a, uh, a funny thing that we don't seem to have the same spectrum of parasites as, um, as that are uh, all around the world. But we do definitely see um, uh, ear mites in ferrets on odd occasions. And, uh, and it's surprising because uh, we see lots of dirty ears and not all of them have uh, um, ear mites in them. Yeah. Well, guess what? Exactly what we see. I said... So many ferrets, I reckon the vast majority of ferrets that I end up anaesthetising for various things, you know, desexins or dental disease, you know, probably the most common reasons why we're bombing them out or maybe zapping them for um, rads for um, heart problems and that, um, it's amazing how many of them, well over fifty percent, um, have grotty ears. Mark have have that 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 brown dark um, um, ceruminous sort of discharge in the ears. So, what do you reckon's the story with that? And it's not a loaded question. It's no, just no. I, every time I I flush one out, and um, or you know, so I'm con- we're constantly cleaning out. It's a it's a routine. It's like looking in the mouth of any any small mammal that we don't intubate you know we obviously open up the mouth and check the teeth and clean out the back of the throat because we just have it on the mask um, for short procedures um, it's a routine now with any ferret that we anesthetize that we're cleaning those ears because it's amazing how many of them have those that really dark brown um, material in the ears so 
ferret, funky ferret ears, I call it. Um, so what's the story? And I do have a theory, Brendan. I have. Oh, surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> um, and when we first, we would notice exactly the same thing, that on average, probably more than 50% of the ferrets that we knock out for other reasons have that greasy um, sort of mallet seizure. It's very similar to what you'd expect yes. in a dog that has mallet seizure, though. Um, and we definitely have had some of them have mallet seizure, but it's not a universal finding when we smear the greasy gear. Um, I, my theory, my theory is that um, ferrets have evolved from animals that require um, that that are exp- that have the, um, the, a very very cold winter. They have this dramatic uh, annual cycle of, um, of you know, the, the very northern latitudes where the winters are exceedingly cold and the uh, summers are, are pleasant. Um, and I think that leads to a different, I don't know whether it's a physiological flow of wax in the air or um, immunity, um, and so then they end up with... Uh, um, some form of atopic dermatitis. But I think the fact that they're constantly warm their whole life uh, when they're our pets changes the immunity or the physiology of the ear, and I reckon that's the problem. So I can feel a paper coming on for this, Mark. You need to record some of these and and get get some video of those ones that you scope and clean out because you are going to scope them as well and and collect that that funky ferret discharge mark and start documenting it because yeah i reckon this there's there's got to be something with it um isn't there mark and and, and you look in the textbooks all the all the traditional textbooks they they primarily just talk about the parasites don't they, oh, they um, there's, i've secret. read some of those textbooks which suggest that um every uh, ferret will have had eomites at some stage in their life. And while that may be true in other countries, it's certainly not my experience here in Australia. Yes. So, yes, it's a, it's another another little project that we need to add to the ever-increasing list. And perhaps one of our listeners can take it and run, Mark, probably run the opposite <laughs> way. But um, it would be great to get some more information on that. I think it's, 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 you know, these common things that we see, they're often the things that people never bothers looking at, never bothers to look at, isn't it? Um, and it's the unusual stuff that everybody jumps up and down about and yet the, the, there's things we're seeing every day that um, nobody's ever worked up and, and nutted out the problem or, or the cause of these conditions. So, yeah. So any other any other comments about ferret ear problems, Mark? Any other sort of... Um, um, conditions you see or any other difficulties or, or, or tips or tricks with with ferret ears? Well, I was only going to mention that um, that like you, we do the the regular flush out of the, the you know, if we have them anaesthetised for another reason. Um, and it does seem to be a relatively, you know, their ear canal is relatively short and um, uh, with some warm saline um, we can usually uh, gently get the material in there out. Um, we don't see too many foreign bodies in ferrets, um, but um, but they do seem relatively easy to clean those canals out in our experience, Brendan. Yeah, no, I, I can't remember the last foreign body I, I've seen in a ferret ear canal and I think it's because it's such a sort of narrow, short ear canal um, with them. Uh, it's, all, all, it's all those grotty... Um, brown ears majority of the time yeah 
Um, yeah, so let's jump on to another. Um, we briefly spoke about guinea pigs, didn't we, with foreign bodies in, in guinea pig ears. Do, are there any other interesting conditions you see with guinea pig um, ear canals? Well, I was just going to comment on the foreign bodies again as we go to guinea pigs because that's one of the – we'll often talk about guinea pigs having seizures and talk about the – uh, infestations of mites that lead to intense pruritus and and uh, um, and that seizure-like activity in guinea pigs, um, but um, certainly if if they don't have mites, uh, a uh, um, a foreign body in the ear will produce this a similar you know they it's often hard to distinguish between the frantic behaviour if they've got something stuck in their ear and and the intense pruritus that's sometimes associated with um, some of those external parasites. Yes. Well, I can't add anything to that, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> Just look in the I ear is my add. tip. If they are, um, you know, I, we regularly um, would send them home with uh, one of the external parasite uh, um, treatments. Um, if they're behaving like they've, um, you know, have the typical seizing guinea pig, but just make sure you always do look in their ears because um, uh, I've been caught once or twice where um, they did actually have a foreign body and and, uh, and it wasn't the itchiness from those external uh, parasites. Yes. Okay, so what about our little, other, our little rodents, our rats and mice, Mark? What, what conditions have you seen in them? Um... I mean, the one I'd always like to always like to chat about is that the zimbal gland abscesses, um, or zimbal gland neoplasia um, in the rats. So, um, for those of who don't know, the zimbal gland is a is it probably I don't know. It's, it's sort of potentially been an accessory gland to the ear. It, it sits below and perhaps a little bit in front of the ear canal, I think. Um, and it has a has a um, exit into the ear canal, and it's thought that it's involved with production of of cerumen and earwax, etc. Um, and I think it's always something that needs to be on. The, a differential list if you have a rat that has a swelling at the base of the ear or below the ear or on the side of the face near the ear mark um, and hopefully it's an abscess and not uh, a, a neoplastic lesion there because the vast majority of the zimbal glands that I've seen in rats that have been neoplastic have been pretty nasty, you know, like squamous cell carcinomas and even with really aggressive surgery I've had very little success with the mark and that they recur and we end up having to euthanize the animal. Have you seen these? Yes, I have. I was uh, hesitating because the name Zimbal's gland had left left my head for a moment. Um, but um, we don't often see abscessation of that gland at all, Brendan. And where we do find um, mass effects, uh, they often end up um, shortly after eroding and and uh, turn out to be nasty tumours of one sort or another. And um, particularly, as you mentioned, squamous cell carcinoma um, uh, and um, a number of adenocarcinomas and, um, and surgical resection is very difficult at that location. So we, I can't tell you we've had great success where we've identified that, uh, particularly in rats. Yes. Well, the only other thing I see in the rats around the ear region is, Mark, some of those external parasites. Um, um, and I've gone blank with the particular species that tends to make little sort of pinpoint um, 
hemorrhages or pinpoint little um, ulcerations around the ear tips, um, almost a moth-eaten look um, on some of the rat's ears, Mark, from from some of the external parasites. So do a bit of a, a, a pluck there or tape prep or even a deep skin scrape when you gas the rat down and, and you often see these um, parasites that are causing the irritation to the external ear anyway, to, to the pinner um, there, Mark. So um, I see them occasionally. Are they, are they the sarcopteiform? Um, there's, there's, there's. Uh, I've gone blank. There's sort of three common species, I think, off the top of my head that occur in, in, in rats and yeah. mice. Um, Radfordia, I, I think, is one of them. Um, I, I, I'm trying not to jump on Doc, Doctor Google and have a look. I'm just trying to rack my brain about it. But yeah, um, you know, that's really they're the only. Um, only things I tend to see um, in in rats, as far as I wouldn't say common, but unusual um, ear conditions that, that that I'd be seeing are, the, are those zimbal gland ones, and um, the occasional zimbal gland abscess that you said you rarely see, and um, and these ears that have that little um, um, pinpoint lesions of them, or the moth-eaten look um, due to the external parasites. I always learn something new every time I talk to you, Brendan. Well, I think, Mark, we, we're going to divide this into two episodes, this one. So we'll, we'll do number two, um, part two of ear problems, and we'll cover the reptiles and the birds and our, um, our little aquatic creatures um, in the second one, Mark. I think that's how we should do it because we're just about run out of time here. And um, Mr. Outro is about to um, jump in. So are there any final comments you'd like to I'll say? I'll save them up for next time. Good. We'll see you all next week. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.